0: All right, the title of the sermon today is Pistuon, Pistuon. That is the Greek term. It means he who believes, that's how it's translated. And the root of the word is pistis, which means faith. Pistuon, he who believes or the believing. Now we are in John three still. We've spent a lot of time talking about Nicodemus and the message of the new birth and how that works. And we've already, if you go to page two of the outline, we've already talked about things like, for example, the serpent in the wilderness from the Numbers text. We see that John the Baptist repeats this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so, what we're told, if we look at verses 15 forward right it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life verse 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life okay so that message is given by jesus and we have that message given by john And again, this is the most clear text about the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the Bible, because it is abundantly clear that those who believe are saved, those who do not believe are not. They're laying side by side a universal affirmative, all who believed are saved, and then the universal negative, all who do not believe are condemned. So no non-believers are saved. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Okay, so this difficulty, people have a difficulty with the idea that okay, all that believe are saved, none who are unbelieving are saved. And so how do you deal with the idea of God loving the world and at the same time, how do you deal with the idea that there are people who are unbelieving, who are of the world, and are not saved? Okay, and the basic logic of the question looks like this. If God loves a person, wouldn't he save them? The answer is yes. Okay, we can have lots of like pretend answers to try to get around that and say he still loves them while hating them forever and sending them to torment forever. And seeking their harm forever. And that's a sort of love. That is not love. We, we want to say God loves everybody. We are desirous for it. Because it is one of the most popular things to say. We say God is love. Right? And that's what the scriptures say. But we have clear teaching. That I have gone over before with you. But this is so contrary to the world. That I want you to have it clearly in mind. So look at point five. Okay? God gave his only begotten son in order that all the nations, the world, not just ethnic Israel, would be saved. So it is not talking about God loving every single individual. It is talking about him having a love not only for Israel, but for the world, so all the nations. So the contrast is between just the Jews, salvation only being for the Jews, versus Gentiles also. And it's the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews that are saved. So, first of all, I want to prove to you, look at 5a. Love and hate are mutually exclusive. I have verses for you here. The most obvious of them is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. has a long list of mutually exclusive things. It'll be like rejoicing and weeping or something like that. These are, these are put side by side as, time, as things that are contrasting. And the point is to say there's a time to do one thing and there's a time to do the, the opposite thing, the mutually exclusive, the contradictory thing. So Ecclesiastes 3.8 says there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time of war and a time of peace. Okay, so that's the one of the obvious verses. For example, we're commanded in Amos 5.15 to hate evil and love good. Okay, so are we supposed to interpret that as not precluding the hating of good and not precluding the loving of evil? <coughs> Luke 16.13 No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and love despise the other you cannot serve god and mammon so we have this idea of the mutually exclusive choice of a highest master and how you're going to love one choose one to be the highest or the other you can't make both equally the highest and i have another number of other verses that help to prove the point at the bottom of the page you can look them up page three god does not love every individual these are verses that make that abundantly clear The fastest and easiest way to do it is to look at Psalm 5.5. You hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11.5. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. We have Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And so this is true. God hates the wicked angels and he loves the righteous angels. For men, we are all wicked. And so we know that the love of God is not on the basis of our own merits, but is on the basis of the merits of Christ. So if he loves you, it's because of what Christ has done. This matters because this defends the holiness of God and the justice of God. God is just. He hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. We deserve his hatred. You will not understand the glories of the gospel unless you first understand that you deserve the hatred of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's appropriate and right that God would hate you? Do you believe that you are worthy of God's hatred? I believe it deep in my soul. I am certainly worthy of his hatred. And there is nothing in me lovely. There is nothing that would make it so that God would say, there is something good in that one. Apart from the work of the the Spirit that he has put in me. But it's not a perfect righteousness. It's not sufficient. The only reason... For God, to view me as lovely, as righteous, as good, is the merit of Christ imputed to me, covering me. That's true of you too. You deserve the hatred of God, I deserve the hatred of God, because we are wicked. And we are loved only in Christ. All of those who do not yet have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them who are not believers yet, God looks forward knowing that He has chosen them and knowing that Christ has already paid for their sins and He will apply the righteousness to them. His election is an eternal love and His reprobation is an eternal hatred. The condemnation is rooted ultimately in God's purpose of God glorifying himself and justice is manifest by his hating wickedness and his mercy, his grace is displayed by his love of us in forgiveness because of what Christ has done. So Look at point C on page 3. Love or favor is the desire for the good of the object. And you can see this in Luke 6, for example. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. The love of enemies is, love is seeking the good of a person, and an enemy is somebody who hates you. So, love your enemies is then defined for us as do good to those who hate you. Do you see that there? Love them, do good for them. Your enemies, the ones who hate you. Proverbs nineteen eight: He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. So your soul, the good for your soul is wisdom. If you care for your soul, if you seek the good of your own soul, you'll get wisdom. That's the thing to get. That's the good for your soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. There's a relationship there. Proper understanding is wisdom. So if you understand the truth and understand it to be true, that is wisdom. And you love your own soul. You find what's good for your soul. So love is the desire for the good of the object. Page four, God does all he desires. If he wants something, he gets it. Okay? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in the earth and in the seas and all deep places. Job 23.13. God is unique. And who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. Okay, So he does everything he wants. So if he wants to save a person, if he desires the good of a person, is he going to get it? The answer is Yes. This is overwhelmingly not the answer that you will hear in evangelical churches and even Calvinistic churches. You will generally find people trying to find ways to avoid saying what is plainly there. This is very important for a coherent reading of Scripture and for understanding God's purposes and the nature of God. We want to avoid anything that makes us so that God has contradictory desires. God does what he pleases. He does all that he pleases. There are no pleasings that God has that God doesn't do. And that helps you to understand the level of power that he has. And also the wisdom. His infinite wisdom is such that none of his desires contradict. He manages to get everything he wants and is never frustrated. I'm frustrated all the time. You guys frustrated all the time? You get all all the things you want, just all the things. Everything you want always happens without any mutual exclusivity to them. You're a very good chooser. So God loves all the elect. Jesus accomplishes redemption so that all the elect will be saved. That's limited atonement. He pays for their sins and not the sins of everybody. Now, just above, we were taught in earlier parts of John 3, about the work of the Spirit to convert, to cause the new birth. That's the irresistible grace of God. That's God, out of his grace, irresistibly overcoming the hatred that is in the hearts of men for him. Men hate God, and God changes them to love him. He gives them faith, which is the beginning of love, and he matures their love. He gives faith not as a basis of salvation, but as the instrument of salvation. Verse 17 teaches us that God did not send his son to condemn the world. Condemnation was already the baseline. The earthly things that need to be known are clear from the law that man is in a state of original sin. In other words, we are guilty in Adam. We have a corrupt nature. We have total depravity, we don't have any part that's good we're constantly transgressing the law of God because we fail to have the proper goal we fail to believe everything we ought to believe and we fail to apply everything that has been revealed and so for all those reasons we are in constant transgression of the law and so we need a gift of spiritual life because we cannot create something good in ourselves so rather God the Son was sent in order to save the world Okay? does this mean every individual? no, it means saving people out of every nation That is the point. That is the context. Jesus is not saying, I save everybody who believes. I don't save the people who do not believe. I'm going to save every individual. That's not what he's saying. He very plainly does not teach that everybody is going to be saved and very plainly does not teach that everybody will believe. (coughs) Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, so faith is the instrument of justification and faith is also when absent a part of the guilt that we have for not having it. If we don't have faith, we are guilty for not having faith. The first commandment requires us to have faith. We are to know and acknowledge God. At the same time, knowing and acknowledging God imperfectly is not a basis of justification. We are counted righteous because... We are connected to Christ's perfect obedience. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Okay, so people don't want to be around the law and they don't want to be around clear teaching if they want to hide heresy and sin. Public meetings are a part of transparency that allows for light to be brought. Secret government is an example of hiding. So we make a great effort that there be transparency about issues in our own body. Because we want to acknowledge that I am evil. Anybody else who would enter government except for the Lord Jesus Christ is evil. And so in order to restrain the wickedness of men, transparency is necessary that light might be brought. And furthermore, those who are so wicked as to be obviously unfit for office will scatter or be removed more quickly. Verse 20. This is, but that's not the context of the verse, that's an application. The verse itself is talking about, in general, avoiding the preaching of the word and the preaching of the law And avoiding uh, being brought into a place where that would be clear. And church discipline and church government are a part of helping to make that clear. Verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the motive for not wanting to come into the church, not wanting to come into hearing the preaching of the truth. This is the motive for wanting to avoid righteous company and to suppress the truth externally so that the deeds of men will not be exposed. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Okay, So Christ perfectly does that, and he increased his conflict and increased his publicity throughout his life because he was not afraid of the light. Now, when we, avoid, when we avoid increasing publicity, when we avoid taking fights as far as they should be taken, those things are motivated by cowardice, laziness, by um, uncertainty. If you read Luther as he is engaging with Rome, his highs and lows are all over the place. Right there. Luther, you know, from one moment is calling the pope the man of sin, and the next moment going, "Am I alone right?" You know, and you know this like up and downness. When you, the 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 psychological swings of trying to do things for the glory of God, are rough, and you can see that in the servants that try to do hard things. And so when you when you read one of the great things about reading the writings of the servants of the Lord in the past is you see the slipping of the foot, the ineffectiveness, the mistakes, the failures. And at the same time, you see the fortitude that the Lord gives them to continue on. And so I would, I would greatly encourage you um, if you have never read any of the first generation reformers, anybody who is around when they were first engaging with Reformation in terms of the early 1500s, if you haven't read any Luther, read some Luther. And he says lots of stuff that's just wackadoo. Just wrong. Just really ridiculously wrong. And yet he also preaches the true gospel just blazingly clearly at times. And so you read... Zwingli, you will find similar glorious truths and similar slipping. You read guys that are early in the Reformation and they are in the fight early, figuring stuff out. People's lives are on the line. They're dealing with problems all over the place. They don't know how to solve things. They make wrong calls. and They're just like, we're going to keep trying to do this and figure out what God's Word says. And you'll hear in, within a couple of paragraphs, Luther very clearly teaches the regulated principle of worship. And then assert we can have saints days as long as they are not too many. right? Like within like a half page. Like it's amazing. It's just right there. So you'll have him say something like any work that's not commanded by God is the work of the devil. Literally it's a quote. And then he says we can have within like a half page you can have saints days as long as there's not too many. It's just And he's trying to restrain how many there are. He's saying there's so many saints' days that we can't do the work that we need to sustain ourselves. This is the context that he's talking in. in His nobility of the... His address to the Christian nobility of the German nation. Okay, that's 1520. So anyways, um, if you look at that, you find that there are these difficulties of the servants of the Lord as they seek to come further into the light and to press things into greater publicity and transparency, they slip and they fail, and yet the Lord upholds them, and they push forward. And so you can know, reading men like Luther, that, first of all, your theology is probably better than his when he was writing that. Okay, think about that. The Lord has made it so the great men like Martin Luther, in the time of the controversy of the Reformation, probably had less theological maturity than a lot of the people sitting in this room right now. Why? Because we get to stand on his shoulders. Because he was fighting in a context where he would be executed if he clearly taught the solace. And so he's figuring this stuff out and trying to deal with the fact that the scriptures have been hidden and that there is this layering on of darkness that has occurred and he's trying to figure out how to clean it up, how to clear it up. If you read... One of, he has three major treatises that were written in 1520 okay? these are the, kind of considered the major treatises of the reformation where he kind of kicks off things this is early on, this is before the Diet of Worms he has the Christian of a, the liberty of a Christian that one he magnificently displays the gospel in he has the Babylonian captivity where he argues against the seven sacraments of Rome in favor of the two sacraments of the Protestant faith, but here, here's the fun part In his introduction, he says there are three sacraments. The Lord's Supper, Baptism, and Penance. And then when he's writing on Penance, he realizes he's wrong. And he's like, this isn't a sacrament. And so in his conclusion, there are only two. This is how fast he's trying to write to publish. His introduction, he thinks there's three. His conclusion, he thinks there's two. Okay, was that a slip-up? I mean, like, the introduction says there's three sacraments. The conclusion says there's two. This is still how they are published. Okay? So, then, you have the address to the Christian nobility of the German nation. And that one, he's trying to say, look, the state of the church is so awful, we need the civil magistrate to come in and to seek to reform it. Okay, so, he's writing all this, he's got all this difficulty, and he is... This is before he goes on trial at the Diet of Worms, and so this work—if you read those—you will be encouraged by his boldness for the gospel. Find them; they the free audiobooks on like YouTube. You can find them. Okay? You, you'll be encouraged by his boldness for the gospel, and you will also—you will also be flabbergasted at the crazy things that he says. Okay, so you will find marvelous truths and horrific failures. And the point there, Luther matures. You read his later works, it gets better and better. You read The Bondage of the Will, it's fantastic. You will see his maturing. You will see his improvement. You will see the way the Lord uses and improves things he does. And you will find that with many of the men that you respect. I want you to be encouraged that though you fail, though you slip, The Lord will not let you go. The Lord will grow you. The Lord will give you strength. He will help you to overcome the flesh and the world and the devil. And many of those who were Luther's early enemies became Luther's later friends. And many of his early friends became his later enemies. There is an unreliableness to man, but there is a reliableness to God. And so the work of people being pushed into the light, God does this. He causes his truth to be pressed. And what he does is he builds up his elect. And we need to remember that the elect are in different stages in this life. Look at the bottom of page 4. So the elect are those whom God has predestined to be vessels of mercy to display his graciousness without failing to be just. So He's just and he's gracious. There are those who are already dead. God loves them. He regenerated them, and now they are glorified awaiting the resurrection. There are those who are alive today. God loves them. Some are already regenerate and thus believing right now. If you're regenerated, you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're regenerated. Some are not yet regenerate, but they are elect. And they are thus not believing right now. But God will give them faith in time. Some of you in this room can remember when you were converted. Some of you cannot. But there was a point in time in which God gave you faith. There may be some in this room who do not have faith. You should repent and believe. Of the elect, there are some who are not yet born, not yet conceived. God loves them. They are not conscious. They're not waiting around. They're not sitting there thinking, waiting around to get their body. They're not yet minds. They exist only as plans in the mind of God. They have a legal connection and metaphysical connection to those who are already dead and those who are already alive now. But They have not yet come into the world. God has planned for them and planned for their good. On the other side, you have the reprobate, those who God has predestined to be vessels of wrath display his just hatred of evil. And there is the same division, those that are already dead, those that are already alive, and those that have not yet been conceived. And in all of them, there is an implacable wrath of God towards them for the wickedness that they have done or will do. So justification occurs in time. On Page 5 here. It is not eternal. Justification is not election. Do not collapse the distinction. God gives us faith and justifies us by faith. God's love is unchanging, and he sets it on people from eternity past. Verse 19, this is the condemnation. The guilty finding is on the basis of the root sin of not believing and thus not valuing the light. The love of darkness is the hatred of the light. The love of the light is hatred of the darkness. We are guilty in Adam. We have a corrupt nature, which is that unbelieving condition, and we commit particular sins out of that unbelief. Remember, the light unchangeably hates darkness, and darkness unchangeably hates light. So the more light that is in you, the more you will hate your own sin, the more you will hate evil doing and yet until it is revealed who is elected, who is reprobate on the day of judgment or for those where we have supernatural revelation about that we are to love and seek the good of even our enemies point 16 the light is hated because it marks the distinction of things known evil deeds are clearly seen because of the light you can expect people to hate the light You can also expect God to overcome them with the light. Now, I want to jump forward to page 6. We spent time on this last time. I've given you the answers here about the causes of salvation. So hopefully this matches up with what you thought about in your own time previously. The formal cause of justification is Scripture alone. The effectual cause is grace alone. The instrumental cause is faith alone. The meritorious cause is Christ alone, and the ultimate cause is God's glory alone. So hopefully those answers are not a surprise to any of you. Page 7. We spent some time here last time as well. What is justifying faith? And what we have is a list of 12 things that need to be believed. Some people want to read this as a thing that's talking about psychological activities so look at the words that I have underlined convinced assents receives rests some people want to say you've got to be convinced which might be like a feeling in your spleen you've got to assent which is in your mind you've got to receive which I don't know maybe that's a physical thing and then resting make sure that you're lying down when you do it I don't know what people want to make these things into But the most common thing to say is that saving faith is understanding doctrine, believing it is true, and then applying it to yourself and thinking there's nothing else you've got to do. Okay, well, the first one is understanding the content, and the next three are things that you do to the content. You think it's true, you think it's true about you, and you think that there's nothing else that you have to add besides faith. Okay, so that's just stuff to think. So the activities are understanding and thinking it's true. Just to remind you of this, for example, if a Marxist walked in the door right now and interrupted my preaching and started to read the Communist Manifesto to us all, and I decide I'm not going to interrupt because it's an interesting read. So we all listen to the guy, and we hear him read the Communist Manifesto. I would wager... That most of us in the room would understand the content of that document and I would also wager that the people in this room would generally not assent to the content would not think it is true so you can understand content without agreeing with it in your mind faith is when you understand it and you agree with it not just with your mouth But when you actually, in your heart of hearts, when you internally think it is true. So saving faith is understanding the gospel and understanding it to be true. Saving faith is understanding what the gospel means and believing it to be true. So here are 12 propositions we need to believe. You need to be convinced that you're a sinner, that you have original sin in Adam that you have a corruption of your nature, and that you commit actual transgressions. You commit particular sins. You need to be convinced that your sin makes you miserable. It shouldn't be very hard. Just think about your life choices, right? And you will find that you can find lots of things that you are miserable about. Consider the fact that you are not able to save yourself. You are not perfectly righteous. You cannot pay for all of your sins. You cannot fulfill God's law. And so you find that you are unable to save yourself. You find that there's no creature under heaven that can save you. These are things you have to believe. You have to believe that the promise of the gospel, which is the promise of forgiveness and the promise of reward, that these things are true, that God's not lying. And furthermore, you have to believe that you get them not just because it's true of everybody, but rather you have to believe that it's through Christ. You have to believe what is true about Christ and what's true about Christ's righteousness. And you have to rest on Christ and rest upon his righteousness. What does that mean? That means you have to think Christ's work is enough. There's nothing else I have to do. You have to believe that Christ's work is enough for your pardon of sins, for you to be forgiven. You have to believe that Christ's work is enough for you to be accepted as righteous by God. You have to believe that Christ is enough for you to be accounted as righteous by God. So God legally accounts you as righteous, and God accepts you and gives you all the benefits of righteousness on the basis of what Christ has done. These are 12 things to be believed. This is content that is the larger catechism's effort to say, here is the minimum that somebody should believe to have confidence that they are saved. Now page 8. I'm going to talk about this one some more next week. I'm going to ask you to spend some time thinking about this. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it. It's not because of the fruit or the good works that are fruits of faith nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ in his righteousness. So take some time and think about these questions. And so we'll come back to that next week. Page 9. After these things, verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Okay, So he's in Judea, they're teaching, and there's baptizing that's going on. We're told in other texts of the scripture that the baptism is not performed by Jesus directly, but it's performed by his disciples. So his disciples are baptizing, Jesus is baptizing through them. He is principally teaching. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Selim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Okay, so first of all, Christ is the last Old Testament prophet. He's also the first New Testament prophet. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet in terms of being a purely Old Testament prophet. There are two places here where the ministry is simultaneously occurring, and Christ in his transitional work from the Old Testament to the New Testament is bridging those things. So that's sort of the major thing that's being talked about here. And John the Baptist's ministry is diminishing. We'll read about that in just a second. But one of the things that happens here, John is baptizing... And this baptizing is a ritualistic purification. It's an Old Testament watch, washing. And the text here says that he stays in a certain region because there's much water there. And people say, well, why would he care about there being much water unless he were trying to submerge people? So, thing I want to point out is, most of these sources of water would not be like large rivers that a man could walk out into the middle of and you know, be submerged. We're talking about the major river that exists in this area is the Jordan. And the Jordan is in the middle of the country. What we're talking about, the much water, is the idea that it's easy access. It's not that there's just one big pool of water. It's not just one big river. The idea is that there's easy access to water in lots of areas. So that he can baptize. So this does not prove, and even if even it if were the case, it wouldn't prove that this is talking about a need for credo baptism or submission submersion baptism. So that's just that gets cited for that sometimes and that gets thrown out there. There's nothing about it that necessitates a reading that this is submersion baptism. Verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Why why about purification? Well John's a baptizer. He's baptizing. It's a symbol for purification. And so what's happening is as he's ritualistically baptizing people, which is a ritualistic purification, there's a dispute about the meaning and the need. That's what's coming up. Maybe even the how-to. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Okay, so... Hey, what's the deal here? You know, you're know, you not getting the attention anymore. He's getting the attention. People are going to him. You were baptizing. Now he's baptizing. Seems to be displacing you. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, this is used in two ways here. One, you can't believe what's revealed unless it's given to you. And secondly, in addition to not being able to believe what's revealed unless it's given to you from heaven, further. You don't have any ministry, you don't have any power, you don't have any effectiveness unless God has given it to you. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that what that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Okay, so John's saying, Yeah, look, I was given a ministry to prepare for him. I was sent before him to prepare for him. He is displacing me. That's proper. I'm the guy that went ahead to prepare for him and now he's taking what I prepared. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Hey, don't think I'm the thing. Don't be jealous for me. Don't be angry about this happening. I am a groomsman. Be happy for the bridegroom. He's the guy with the bride. The bride's not mine. The church is not mine. John's attitude is. Every minister of the gospel needs to have that attitude. The church is not mine. That includes, by the way, Puritan is not my church. Okay, so who is Puritan? Who owns Puritan? Who owns Puritan Reformed Church? The Lord Jesus Christ owns Puritan Reformed Church. Pretend for a minute that I commit some sin that disqualifies me from office. Or pretend for a minute that I get hit by a beer truck today it's full it's full beer truck There's a lot of kinetic energy in this beer truck <coughs> bad breaks now if that happens should you all disperse should you all abandon each other should you all go look For some charismatic guy to assemble around. He's not going to have as good of a suit. But, maybe he's got more charisma. Now, no. What you should do is you should band together. You should keep covenant together. You should work together. If I've been removed because of disqualifying sin, I should humble myself and serve in lower ways, less publicly. And then we should have other men carry the banner for the best of their ability, and trust the Lord to strengthen them as they slip and fall and work and fail and seek to maintain covenant and right profession. So, when you think about whose church it is, it's the Lord Jesus Christ Church, and you are each other's brothers. Your duties are to each other and to work and to maintain right doctrine, right worship, and right government. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Do you know, oftentimes we hear this and we just think, yeah, wouldn't it be swell to hear Jesus talking to us? When I read John to you, what do you think you're hearing? So shouldn't we rejoice that we get to hear the voice of the bridegroom? This is John in a positive way, keeping the 10th commandment in a way where he is not covetous, but content. Unless you are better men than I, I should cut you to the quick. The pain of seeing how much more content John is. So there's this beauty of the humility of John. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The way Christ is increased in our midst is by seeing his law order and his gifting manifested in a maturing of the church. We see that his rule, not the rule of any other, is maximized. And we see that the gifts that he has given to the church are put to good use. He who comes from above is above all. Christ is above all. Your loyalty is to him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the head of the church. He is the reality that husbands are a type of. And he is the perfect man that every individual seeks to follow. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. So remember earlier on, Jesus was talking about if you don't understand earthly things, how do you understand heavenly things? So we who come from the earth, right? we who are natures of the flesh, our, our nature is from the natural. Our nature is not the work of the Holy Spirit having given us faith. There's not a new birth. There's not us coming from heaven. Earthly things are contrasted with heavenly things here, just like they were earlier on. So he is of the earth, is earthly, and speaks of the earth. We're not going to speak of the high things of the word of God. We're not going to speak of the heavenly things that Christ has given testimony to unless we are given birth from above. Unless the invasion of heaven occurs in our souls. Remember John 3.13 says, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. He comes down and he speaks because he knows, he has witnessed. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Go to page 10. There's a repetition there. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Right, so he's, Jesus has seen the heavenly things, and He testifies to us about it. His Word is testimony of that. And no one receives His testimony. That's the natural man. The natural man will not accept the light unless the Holy Spirit gives him birth from above. No one receives the testimony of Christ unless God gives that faith to him. He who has received His testimony... Has certified that God is true now that sounds funny to us the word certified we think oh you go to an authority to certify right Like in body armor industry like I make body armor and I go to some bureaucrat somewhere and say pretty please certify me and he goes I am your overlord certified <laughs> or not certified okay is that the relationship that John is talking about here he who receives the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ as overlord bureaucrat certifies what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying? That is not what he is saying. This certification is a bearing witness with, a agreeing. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. In other words, you've also agreed that God is true. And now your testimony is added to the testimony of those who are professing the truth of the light, of what Christ has said. So we are bearing witness. We are certifying in that way. We come along and we say, look to what Jesus has said. Listen to his voice. Hear the bridegroom. Rejoice in his presence. Hear this word. Believe it. We add our voices. We are pointing to it. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he speaks God's words. Receiving these words is receiving the testimony. It's receiving the truth. And you will not receive it unless you are born from above. And the being born from above is the causing you to receive it. For God does not give the spirit by measure. In other words, when you give something by measure, you're going, well, you can have 12 ounces of this. Here's the thing that measures that. I'm pouring it out. Giving it without measure is like taking the container and just going, here, here you go. Here's some more. But this is no measure. He is not going to stop giving it. He is not giving it in in, in little driblets. He is just pouring it out. He gives the truth. So we have in the Scriptures, we have the whole counsel of God. It is without measure. It is something you're not going to get to the bottom of. You're not going to complete it. Now you can understand and believe the particular parts, but you're going to keep adding to it. And so you need to keep plumbing the depths. You need to keep taking the measuring line and realizing your measuring line is not big enough. We're going to need a bigger measuring line. And so that desire to keep going is something that we need to encourage in each other. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He's given... All things, he's given all authority, he's given all of the truth, and there's this without measureness to it, and he is giving that stuff to us. He who believes in the sun has everlasting life. Like we have life and we have it abundantly and we have it forever. And life is that word. And he who does not believe the sun shall not see life. Not going to see the kingdom. Not going to enter the kingdom. Not going to see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. What is wrath? Wrath is hatred. What is curse? Curse is harm. The wrath of God abides on the one who dies in unbelief. This teaches us. Again, justification is by faith alone. And it teaches us that God, not based upon anything in us, but for his own glory, he chooses whom he will save. And he chooses who he will condemn. He does both for his glory. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.